0: My thanks to Pastor Tim Harris and the church for giving me the chance to speak today. Thanks, too, to Rod for his advice and for helping to translate my slides from my home computer to this computer here. That was an ordeal. Thanks, too, to uh, Matt and to Warren for your help. Yes, for me, it takes a village. (laughs) Let's jump right in. In 1869, Russell Conwell, who was a Civil War veteran, And later a Baptist preacher and member of Temple University, in fact, which he founded. He was traveling with a group down the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In Baghdad, they had hired an older man to be their guide. One day on the banks of the Euphrates, this guide took off his cap and twirled it in front of Conwell. That signaled he had something especially important to say. And he told Conwell he's going to tell him a story that he reserved for his special friends. I'll just summarize the story now. The old guide said that there once lived a Persian farmer who was wealthy and contended with his wealth. Then one day he received a visitor, a Buddhist priest, who sat around his campfire and talked to him at length about diamonds and diamond mines. After the priest left... This guy was no longer contented. He stayed awake all night thinking about diamonds. He wanted a diamond mine. And then the next morning, he went early and found the priest, shook him awake and said, where can I find diamonds? He wanted a diamond mine. And the priest told him the kind of land, the kind of terrain where you could most likely find diamonds. After that, Aliha fed left his family with a neighbor, sold all his possessions, and began a search for diamonds. He searched throughout Palestine, then throughout Europe. He found no diamonds. And finally, possessing only the rags on his back, he went to the shore off Barcelona, Spain, cast himself into an oncoming tide, sank beneath its foaming crest, and died. Happy story. But it gets worse. (laughs) Later, it was discovered that the land that Ali Hafed had sold to begin with literally sat atop acres of diamonds. Now, this story so impressed Russell Conwell that eight years later, he made it the basis of a religious speech and one that caught on. He gave it over and over. And one point of his speech was... Not that Aliyah Fed was doing anything wrong in trying to get rich, but that Christians have a duty to get rich and can get rich. What would Jesus say about that? Let's look at the monitor. Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it, sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. That contrasts with the story that the old guide told about Leigh-Hafed. sold his possessions to finance his search for a home with an earthly treasure. The man in Jesus' story sold his possessions to finance his search for land with a spiritual treasure. And the next verse makes the same point. You see here the treasure is a spiritual treasure next verse and the kingdom of heaven is like a man on the lookout for choice pearls when he found a pearl of great value he sold everything he owned and bought it same point point. and later in this chapter Jesus speaks about gems of truth now the bible frequently compares spiritual treasures with precious stones and valued metals Precious stones such as coral, crystal, onyx, rubies, valued metals such as silver and gold. It says spiritual treasures are more precious than these. The Bible stresses spiritual treasures. Jesus said, lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Remember that word heart. You'll hear it a few more times this morning. Now, if we think in terms of spiritual treasures, then Russell Conwell, in his Acres of Diamonds speech, made another point that applies especially to Woodburn Baptist Church. He said that we should look for treasures in our own backyard, in our own community. That certainly applies to the fellowship, the teaching in Sunday school classes, the music, the church planning here at Woodburn. But today we're going to zero in on sermons. I doubt if there's any church in the country with more sermon riches week after week than we have here at Woodburn. Tim Harris will say something, and I'll think, that's a gem. That's a gold nugget. I'm going to take that with me. Here we gather spiritual treasures from our sermons. Now, that's true, but incomplete because I've just talked about what we can give to or get from sermons, not what we can give to sermons. And that's where I'm going mainly from now on in the sermon. Now, getting, giving on spiritual matters, they're related, they're entwined. The more you give, the more you get, the more you get, the more you give. And then when we leave here, we give away what we got here. Through sharing what we learned Or applying what we learned But let's focus now On what we can give to a sermon And the first thing that we can give Is readiness We ready ourselves We get ready We get ready for important events in life I'm sure a night or two Before our pastor Tim Harris Ran his 26 mile marathon He loaded up on carbs He ate a pot of spaghetti And a jug of ramen noodles He got ready Getting ready spiritually is a theme that weaves itself through the Bible. Using a concordance, I found 299 passages that emphasize being spiritually ready. And that doesn't cover many other passages that didn't use words that my concordance captured. Just on a practical level, we need to be physically ready for our sermons as well as for the rest of our worship service. We need to be alert. But to say get ready physically doesn't remotely capture the richness, the fullness of what it means to be ready spiritually. Now, to put spiritual readiness in perspective, I'm going to define communal worship, our worship together. And so you might flash that up on the screen, just the first part of that. Who am I to define worship? Well, I'm nobody. I believe everything that I'm saying. I'm trying. But I don't hold myself up to the ideal worshiper. God is not finished with me yet. But I'm on my way. I'm nobody to define worship, but the Bible has every right to define worship. And this definition comes from putting together scriptures on what worship means. First part is this, as a part of a lifestyle of ongoing transformation. Transformation which Romans 12, 1 says is truly the way to worship God and which Luke 9, 23 says should be a daily process. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Our worship together should extend from our worship apart, from our daily worship. We should already be worshiping when we get here. Now, does that mean you'll always enter worship on a spiritual high? No, not for some of us. Some of you come here with bodies racked with pain, minds frozen in fear, our souls shattered by grief. You don't always come here on a spiritual high. But just remember that David, the man after God's own heart, wasn't always on a spiritual high. Not when Saul and his armies were chasing David, tracking down David and his little band of men. David would write things like, Lord, why do you hide when I'm in trouble? How long will you look the other way? I struggle with anguish in my soul. My bones ache. And I'm here in Lost River Cave surrounded by ISIS. And if that last sentence paints a scary image, remember, ISIS didn't invent beheadings. Al-Qaeda didn't invent beheadings. King Saul didn't think nothing before he'd chop a chump's head off. In those kinds of times, David was not on a spiritual high. But what was he doing when he said those kinds of things I said? Talking to himself? No, he was talking to God. David was not on a spiritual high, but he was on a spiritual path. A path goes up and down. Sometimes you're high, sometimes you're low. Sometimes you fall over a rock. But the important thing is that you're going in the right direction. That is toward God. In the light of Jesus, under the power of the Holy Spirit. Another thing about this path, it doesn't divide into lanes. You know, a work lane, a home lane, a school lane, a Christian lane, open only on Sunday. No, our life path should be undivided, indivisible. Jesus didn't divide himself into parts and give one part of himself to us for part of the time. He gave all of himself for all time. And he expects us to give all of ourselves to him for all time. Paul said, whatever you do, do the glory of God. 1 Peter 1.15, be holy in everything you do. Holy with your family. Holy at Walmart. Holy at that restaurant after church. Through the years, I've heard waiters comment on how some people who wear the name Christian act in the restaurants after church. It makes me think of Peter again, the one inspired to write, be holy in everything you do. Peter. Who was bound by two chains, thrown into jail? Peter, the one who three early historians say was crucified, legend says, upside down. What would Peter think about that Christian who just can't take it? Because that lard lover's pizza didn't get to the table on time. My immediate point is this it might be the human way, but it's not the natural Christian way to fight all the way to church, put on new faces. And jumpstart worship, when Rod announces the first song, or we're invited to cafe worship. Worshippers are who we are. Worship is what we do. When we come together, we should already have worship momentum. We follow our individual, daily, indivisible paths of worship into our communal worship where our paths join to form one wide path of worship let's go to the rest of the definition we respond to God's invitation to come Tim preached a sermon in which he cited a number of scriptures that says God invites us to come so I won't cite any scriptures on that but that's an amazing thought that the God of the universe invites us to worship him assemble to prostrate ourselves before him he's God we're not we bow down to him sometimes literally in church but all times we should bow down to him our worshiper and in spirit and truth give ourselves as living offerings to the only one who is worthy of all praise and glory to the only one that we should show reverence to now this is worship within this flow of worship the sermon happens and just as worship as a whole should be A dynamic process, just as our church music should be a dynamic process and is. Beautiful blended sounds of adoration rising up to God. So, too, we should see the sermon as a dynamic process. Let's go to the next one. Combined forces in action. Now, the usual definition of a sermon doesn't live up to that standard. The typical definition of a sermon constricts restricts squeezes some of the life out of the role that participants should play in a sermon the traditional definition of a sermon as a religious message from a speaker to an audience falls short I believe of what happened in the first century house church and certainly falls short of what effective communication is today so let's look at a different definition of a sermon The blue part will surprise nobody. Extended spoken communication centers on a spiritual truth, aims to glorify God and advance his kingdom. Let's look at what we do in a sermon now. A sermon is a communal worship experience shared by human participants and the Holy Spirit who dwells within each Christian. A communal worship experience. Yes, a sermon includes the what's said, I don't minimize the vocal content of the sermon Content is vital Truth is vital But we need to see an additional dimension of a sermon Consistent with that fact A sermon is a shared experience of us in the Holy Spirit Now to experience something Means to participate in something that happens Synonyms of experience used as a verb include Bring together, come together, bring forth Think through, work through, encounter, feel, grow, stimulate. An anonym of experience as a verb means be passive, which you like better. We should participate in the experience of a sermon. A sermon is a we thing in which we encounter the truth. Now, we'll talk some more in a minute about what we do with the truth. We all know what a pulpit participant is in a sermon looks like it looks like Tim Harris or whoever's standing up here but what does a pew participant in a sermon look like looks like Willie Ray there's power behind Willie's amens and Aurene Ray and Jimmy Harris and Jimmy White still quiet but eyes focused like a laser beam on the speaker always and I'm sure his mind is too sermons of we thing. sermons are us it's not just the pulpit preacher or speaker who should be worshiping in spirit and truth during a sermon who should be prostrating himself down before God who should participate in a sermon sometimes vocally sometimes not but always mentally spiritually fully engaged in a sermon In fact, full ongoing engagement is the center of what spiritual readiness is. Now, we need something else. We need to receive meekly. We need receptivity. How can we give receptivity to a sermon? Well, hang on. Let's talk military terms for a minute. What did the ancient cities have built around them to protect themselves from invading armies? Walls. Let's look at a fort, a depiction of of Jerusalem in Solomon's time. And what do you notice here? Not just one wall, but two walls. There's an outer perimeter and an inner perimeter of defense. Let's go to the next slide for the Civil War. This is an actual picture. Over here is a Confederate army. Over here is the Yankee army. There's an outer perimeter of protection. Sharpened tree trunks pointed outward, and then there's an earthen embankment. Perimeters of protection. We have perimeters of protection around us. They're invisible to others. They're invisible to us because they're self conscious, or self uh, subconscious, I should say. All right? What are they? What are they for? They're to maintain habits and beliefs that we don't want to give up. They're to protect us from uncomfortable truths that might hurt our egos or hamper our lifestyle, we have per- perimeters of protection, and, and that includes Christians too. The person to your right, just look at him. One to your left, one in the middle of them, the one standing here. We all have these perimeters of self defense. Well, let's look at a couple of them. The outer perimeter, is selective exposure to protect us from a truth that might be aimed at us. Let's have an arrow coming in here, all right? Selective exposure, we make ourselves available to or expose ourselves to communication that will support what we wanna think and, uh, and avoid what we don't wanna think, right? So there's selective exposure as attraction going to see something we want to see or hear something we want to hear or read something we want to read, and selective exposure as avoidance, staying away from what we don't want to hear. Selective exposure as attraction was a main reason that Russell Conwell's speech, Acres of Diamonds, was so so in demand. It was given at an age in history, even more than earlier ages in American history, when people focused on the economic impulse, the philosophy of the age, the practice of the age stressed finances. It was the age when you were supposed to get rich and show off your riches. It was the age when the term conspicuous consumption was coined. It was the age when this home, the Biltmore, was built. No surprise that it was the age when... Russell Conwell's speech was in such demand That he gave it 6,151 times People flocked to hear a speech that told people They could get rich and feel Christian for doing it But selective exposure began well before The Biltmore well before Russell Conwell's Acres of Diamond speech Well before social scientists discovered it And gave it the name selective exposure We see it especially in how God's chosen people reacted to the Old Testament prophets. God summed up the general attitude in Isaiah 30 when he said that the people of Judah don't pay any attention to the Lord's instructions. They tell the prophets, tell us nice things, tell us lies, forget all your gloom, get off your narrow path, selective exposure. We see selective exposure as avoidance, In the book of Amos In chapter 3 Amos writes That the town of Bethel Will be reduced to nothing Like that went over well In chapter 7 The priest of Bethel Sends an order to Amos That says get away from here You prophet Go back to the land of Jeddah And earn your living prophesying there Don't bother us with your prophecies Here in Bethel We see selective exposure as attraction and avoidance in 1 Kings chapter 22, where King Jehoshaphat of Judah visits King Ahab of Israel, and they discuss whether or not they should join forces to attack the city of Ramoth and Gilead. Ahab assembles about 400 prophets, all who tell him the same thing. Yeah, go ahead and attack. You'll win. Jehoshaphat says, but is there not a prophet of the Lord here? And Ahab says, yes, there's one, but I hate him. He only prophesies anything but trouble for me. His name is Micaiah. Now think what's happened here so far. Ahab has assembled about 400 ear ticklers who will tell him what he wants to hear. And he's avoided the one truth teller who would tell him what he ought to hear. Selective exposure as attraction and avoidance. But Jehoshaphat persists. He said, That's no way for a king to talk. We should hear from him. So Ahab sends for Micaiah. He's brought before them, and sure enough, he prophesies defeat in battle and death for Ahab. One of Ahab's men walks up to Micaiah, slaps him across the face. Ahab has Micaiah thrown in jail and filled and fed nothing but bread and water and the kings ignore his advice and attack Ramoth and Gilead whose defenders fight back fiercely a random arrow cuts through the air penetrates a joint in Ahab's armor sinks into his body he's able to moan I'm in bad shape wheel the chariot around the driver does wheel it around props Ahab up where his blood drains from his wound runs down his body and pools in the floor of the chariot but he doesn't die yet his life and the battle drag on all day finally as the sun is setting one of Ahab's men yells out we're done for run for your lives and as night falls on the land Ahab takes his last painful breath hard hearts only want to hear good news prophets good news prophets can be soothing and deadly now the man we call the rich young ruler was nothing like king ahab ahab was evil the rich young ruler was a pretty good guy the gospel of mark says that jesus felt love for this person rich young ruler sought out jesus ran to jesus fell on his knees before him and asked what he could do to inherit eternal life jesus told him to keep the commandments he said i've kept these from the youth up he had kept the commandments from his young days but he wanted to do more he was a pretty good guy jesus said Tell all sell all your possessions give the money to the poor and of course the man went away sad because he was rich he didn't want to do that much more. His mind shifted from long term, the kingdom of God and eternal life, to the short term, his life on earth with his possessions. Jesus knew that this man's life had a spiritual lane and a financial lane. Now, where do we read about the time when the rich young ruler went back to see Jesus? That's right nowhere I really hope that I'm wrong but I believe that if he had gone back to see Jesus scripture would tell us Matthew Mark and Luke all give this one story about Jesus and the rich young ruler nobody mentions him a second time other so-called minor characters appear on the gospel scene exit reappear Nicodemus Joseph of Arimathea, three times, each time looking better than they did the first time, but not the rich young ruler. Now, what if the rich young ruler had lived a lengthy life for that day and became the rich old ruler? He had his possessions until the end, and then he died and entered his long term in heaven or hell. By Earth time, this man's long term has lasted over 1,900 years and counting. Long term is a long time; it never ends. But he was once young. Does selective exposure still exist? Tim Harris has said that the, that people will look for the church that confirms the life that they are living. And the truth of this statement fulfills the prophecy of Paul in 2 Timothy 4.3, where Paul says the time is coming when people will no longer endure sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Yes, selective exposure still exists out there but we're in here worshipping in a church that doesn't dodge the hard truths so we don't practice selective exposure do we well a question for all of us to what do we mostly turn our eyes our ears our heads our minds to the things of God or to the things of the world are we the light of the world and the salt of the earth? Or are we just like the culture around us? Are we like those little lizards that take on the color of whatever leaf they stand on? Selective exposure. Now, if the truth gets through the barrier of selective exposure, there's another one. And it is selective attention. That's an inner perimeter of defense what's the difference between selective attention and selective exposure well let's say you have a woman who dips snuff my grandmother was one of the sweetest women i ever knew she was a snuff dipper now let's say you have someone who dips snuff who's here who hears that there's going to be a sermon on the dangers of dipping she won't show up that's selective exposure but let's say the next sermon is entitled the Christian in good health and she thinks yeah I'm all for good health I have read those diet recipes in some of the magazines in the doctor's office I've watched those Nutrisystem commercials on TV even watch a little of that hot yoga when it comes to good health I'm all in so she shows up for that sermon and she listens as long as the Preacher condemns something else, but when he gets to dipping, then she tunes out. Selective attention. Selective attention, New Testament, story of Stephen. Acts chapter 7. Stephen is brought up on false charges before the high council of Jews. And he talks to them for a pretty long time. And apparently they listened for a pretty long time, as long as they agreed with what he was saying. He told them about God and Abraham, and they listened. And then he told them about God and Joseph, and they listened. And then he told them about God and Moses, and they listened. And then he told them about God and David, and they listened. But then he spoke hard truths. He said things like, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears, name one prophet your fathers didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who prophesied the Messiah, and you kill the Messiah. The council of Jews were cut to their heart, Acts says, and gnashed their teeth in rage. And then Stephen looked up and said, I see the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at the right hand of the Father. The council of Jews slammed their hands over the ears, charged Stephen, dragged him out, and stoned him to death. They actually listened as long as they agreed with what he was saying. But when they took offense, they put their hands over their ears and killed him. That's selective attention in its rawest form. We're less open. We're more subtle with our selective attention today. That little woman shows up for the sermon on the Christian and good health. The preacher talks about the dangers of alcohol, and she says, amen. Then he talks about the dangers of marijuana, and she says, amen. But if he then puts down dippers, she's not going to slam her hands over her ears, charge the pulpit, drag him out and throw rocks at him. Not usually. We're more subtle about selective attention today. When the speaker gets to the part we don't want to hear, we just switch our minds to a different channel human nature right Amen. just human nature selective attention selective exposure resisting hard truths how bad can that be we don't have to guess you remember the time when Jesus warned his disciples that he would be delivered over to men crucified and rise again the third day and Peter took a, him aside and rebuked him Said, Lord don't say that that's not going to happen to you This was too hard of a truth for Peter, just human nature. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Satan was behind the human nature. You could even say that with human cooperation, Satan invented human nature. See, everything was good. God created it and said it was good. He gave people a choice. But then there in the Garden of Eden... Satan shows up, Adam and Eve cave in to sin, and that's where things got twisted around and turned over, and human nature turned south. So let's not minimize this. Let's not minimize our resistance to hard truths. But what can we do about it? We don't have to guess. Let's go back to James chapter 1, to the larger passage... From which I earlier quoted, receive meekly the word of God, the engrafted word, which will save your souls. Could we have another slide up here? There it is. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Three clues. Let's look at the next one. The first clue, be swift to hear, slow to speak. Let's stop there. We check our egos at the door. It's an attitude. Slow, the Amplified Bible says to take offense and get angry. And most of the time when we get mad, we get mad at other people. I get mad at myself sometimes when I trip over a crack in the sidewalk or something like that. But most of the time when we are offended it's by other people. And a lot of times but if if they tell us something we should hear and we don't want to hear. So we need to suppress that ego. Clue two, lay aside all filthiness. In other words, don't try to hang on to that favorite sin. Don't resist the truth because you want to maintain that habit, or because I want to maintain that habit. Receive with meekness but that's the center of the issue here meekness remember i said that true worship is bowing down to god now if we resist a truth just because we don't want to hear it we're bowing down to ourselves and that's not a good place to be that's not meekness that's not brokenness that's not self-forgetfulness that's a hard heart Remember those scriptures that use the word heart. Some of them show that the ear problem is a heart problem. Hard hearts make for dull hearing. So maybe I have the wrong image up here. Maybe we need a heart, not a head. And of course, I'm not talking about the blood pump. What is the heart that the Bible talks about? And really, the way we use heart through the centuries, what that word tends to mean. This heart has two chambers. It has a want chamber, W-A-N-T, and a don't want chamber. Now, the problem comes when we insert the word I in front of want and don't want. We should want what God wants and not want what God doesn't want. We should be transforming into that kind of person. We need to reclaim the promise of Ezekiel 36, 26, where God says, I will put in you a new heart and a new spirit. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a tender, responsive heart. When that happens, we can say with Isaiah, Lord, our heart's desire is to glorify your name. In the night, I earnestly seek you, In the day, I earnestly look for you. That's the kind of heart we need. We should not bow down to ourselves. We should bow down to God. We should not exalt ourselves. We should exalt God. We should hunger and thirst after righteousness. We need a soft heart, a teachable heart, one that dissolves the ego and melts away the perimeters of defense around us. A receptive heart, Christian receptibility or receptivity is a heart open to God. We all need that kind of heart. And we need more. We need reasoning. That's what comes next. C.S. Lewis said that God wants a child's heart and a grown up's head. Why is that? 24 out of 27 New Testament books stress that we should look out for false prophets. So we need reasoning to avoid what the false prophets are trying to teach us. And what is reasoning? It's what makes sense to God. And God has left his whole Bible full of what makes sense to him. Now, where are the false teachers today? Several places, but on TV for one. Understand I'm not talking about all TV preachers, but I am talking about a bunch. The ones who, if you strip away their out-of-context Bible quotes, their crafty arguments, their slick delivery, then their message reduces to eight words. Send me money so you can get rich. Send me money so that you can get rich. Do we even need to analyze that? But people do send in their money, and somebody does get rich. Jesus said there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, they're here on TV where sheep's clothing looks a lot like Armani suits, which I hear are expensive. So we need reasoning, but we combine that with receptivity. What does that look like when it happens? We don't have to guess. Turn to Acts 17, please, verses 10 through 12. Paul and Silas have just been in Thessalonica. Paul has preached. A riot got started afterwards. That's not receptivity. And then we come to verse 10. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. That's receptivity. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were telling the truth. That's reasoning. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men that's the result that's a simple formula reasoning plus receptivity equals change the right kind of change now we need to go further remember those Bereans searched the scriptures day after day they didn't leave the sermons in the synagogue they took them with them we don't need to leave the sermons in the sanctuary we need to take them with us. And so, to readiness, receptivity, and reasoning, we need to add remembrance, or to do that, we need to review quickly in order to remember. Now, I've discovered that ink on a page lasts longer than a thought in my head. But today, because of technology, we don't even need to write stuff down. We have U Vision in this church. The sermon app where you can go back and, and check on what's said afterwards. And my Sunday night Bible study group uses the Sunday morning sermon as the basis for our discussion. I recently got rid of my $14 flip phone. I've stepped a toe into the 21st century. I think I might like this technology stuff, especially you version. I hope you'll check the U version for this sermon. Here's what you'll find. You'll find a quick review of the points made. You'll find all the scriptures that were referred to. You'll find questions that you can use to probe your own thinking about how to apply the sermon to you. And then there are bonus features, uh, extra stuff on the Biltmore Mansion and the Vanderbilts and stuff on Russell Conwell with spiritual application. Stuff interesting stuff that you won't find on wikipedia or anything else online probably i encourage you to go there we need to review in order to remember but as tim harris has said a sermon is not just food for thought it's fuel for life so we need to go to that next step we need to respond obediently like the man who built his house on the rock he listened and obeyed. And when the winds came, the storm came, the flood came, it didn't fall because it was built on the rock of Jesus Christ. Sermons are us. They are us when preached, they're us when remembered, and they're us when lived. They should take root in our hearts. Sink deep into our souls and take hold of our lives we need to give God all of who we are follow our daily individual indivisible paths of worship into our communal worship where our paths join and from this wide path our worship together propels us back out along our individual daily indivisible paths of worship into our homes, our workplaces, our schools, our communities, where the light of Jesus within us will shine all the brighter for all the world to see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help all of us to walk the paths that we should walk, worshiping you, the Almighty God, and we pray, Father, that if there are those here who are not Christians, that they will have listened and obeyed before they leave here. That they will allow the Holy Spirit to be put into them. That they will obey Romans ten nine. And truthfully confess that they believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That they will repent the way Acts 2.38 says to do. That they will allow you to reenact your death, burial, and resurrection in their lives. The way Romans 6 describes. And live lives for you. Not because any measly acts on our part could ever save us. But because you gave all of yourself for us for all time. And we want to give all of ourselves to you for all time. Amen.